Dateline, a campus near you. Read all about it. Press releases, articles, blogs, news feeds, rankings, books, tweets, posts, podcasts. The head spins and swims in admissions, updates, news, spin, lists, commentary, gossip. So much buzz, too much info, so many opinions. I'm here to help. When the beat is loud, I'll turn down the volume. I'm Lee Cuffin, Dartmouth's Dean of Admissions. Welcome to the Admission Beat, the pod for news, conversation, and advice on all things college admissions. Once a college admission officer, always a college admission officer. And I wanted to bring the band back together and bring a few of my colleagues who are now former deans and directors into this podversation and to see what they're thinking now that they're no longer at a desk making decisions and signing letters, but still full of wisdom after many years of doing what we've all loved to do as part of our professional identities. So this week, Admission Afterlife, we will have a conversation with two former deans and a director about the admission landscape as they see it. But first, let's visit the newsroom. Welcome to the Admission Beat Newsroom. And this week we have a treat. Um, I am joined as always by Charlotte Albright, uh, my co-host in all things admission news, but more deliciously by three uh, former admission leaders who are gonna animate this episode with me. So hello to Jen Desjardins, the former Dean of Admissions at Wellesley, Karen Stroud Felton, the former Dean of Admissions at GW, and Jeff Schiffman, the former Director of Admissions at Tulane. Hi to all three of you. Hey, Lee. Good morning. Hello. Charlotte, in this week's admission headlines, what are you seeing? Well, there is big news. It's not exactly new news, uh, but it keeps getting bigger because it's fueling this perennial and heated debate about whether colleges may consider race when they make their admissions decisions. And you know, there is a little recent history, I guess, that we should recall, which is that in 2016, the Supreme Court did give the University of Texas permission uh, to continue their affirmative action policies, but that wasn't the end of the story because lawsuits keep bubbling up. And my understanding is it's the same group, Students for uh, Fair Admissions, but these lawsuits are originating in different colleges now. And this week, the news is, that the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill got sort of what I'd call the yellow light from U.S. District Court Judge Loretta Biggs, who ruled that race is not the defining feature in their decision making. And so these cases are not going away. And I'm wondering how you, Lee, as as a vice provost for enrollment and a dean of admissions, and the rest of you who have been dealing with this in the past and are now sort of out of that seat and looking at the media from your own points of view, you know, what are you seeing in all this litigation and what are you looking for as it continues? So I I think the overarching themes are how does a college define merit in the way we evaluate applications and invite students to join our communities? Um, The idea that uh, we practice holistic review so that each applicant is considered across multiple different um, dimensions. And in that context, race is one of those factors. One factor among many is the standard from the Supreme Court that we all um, honor. And so I I think you're right, this this 
win for Chapel Hill in federal court is a, I would say it's more than a blinking yellow light. I think it's a reaffirmation to me of holistic admission principles and the importance of racial diversity on the undergraduate campuses we are um, building around the United States. But Jeff and Karen and Jen, I mean, you've each, like me, had to um, steer through this topic. What what do you make of the um, the ongoing conversation and, and the win for UNC? I think it's a huge win. I think um, I think the the quote that the um, that the judge said about you know how is it that race can play such a a part in a young person's life every day of their lived experiences except up until the day that they apply to college, you know, and they spend so much of their lives hearing that college is the key to success. College is the American dream. And you might be facing all these challenges at every point of your life up until then uh, because of the color of your skin or your identity. And then all of a sudden we're saying, oh, wait, 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 that, that doesn't matter at this point in the process. It's just mattered all the way up until now. So I applaud this decision. Yeah. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with, with Jeff and, and with Charlotte. Uh, it's not going away. This is not going away. Um, you know, as long as there are folks who feel like some group of people are getting something that they can't get or, or won't get or is taken away from them, th these conversations will continue. Um, it's interestingly, though, thinking about your comments, you know, I don't necessarily um, this is Karen opinion, you know, I don't necessarily think of race from the perspective of merit in the admissions process. You know, I think about particularly when you are talking about smaller liberal arts places, but all, but all institutions of, of, of size and, and composition, like we are, we are hoping to build communities where there are um, divergent viewpoints, divergent viewpoints um, result from varying experiences. And so, you know, when you're thinking about that, like you can't divorce race from the conversation. You know, I have the perspective that I have because I'm a, I'm a black woman. I'm a black woman of a certain age, right? Um, and so all of those things contribute to how I think about the world, how I um, engage in the material that is disseminated in the classroom, how then, everyone's perspective is broadened because of what I bring from my vantage point. And so, you know, at our core, I think that's what, what colleges and universities are all about, right? To bring folks together to expand knowledge. And to Jeff's point, and, and to the point that was addressed in the article, to try to um, extract that piece um, of, of someone's identity and their perspective is incredibly short-sighted and, and not valuable. Yeah. Very precise. And, and impossible, I think. <laughs> and impossible. Yeah. impossible. Not to mention impossible. I see these as really important opportunities to engage our campuses in what it means to be you know, educating young people um, in, in an environment where there is really great challenge to, to um to us all to think differently, right? And um, and reflecting back to my own experience um, in the the dean's chair, one of the biggest challenges was to to engage that conversation. What does this reflect, and and how we ought to be thinking about what Karen was um, was speaking to? What does it mean to be an inclusive 
to have an inclusive community. There's, there's somehow this false dichotomy that by, by being inclusive, we're, we're excluding others. And so um, just uh, for me, it's, it's often a question of what does this reflect and why does it matter and how do we um, attend to that in the roles that we had to. I hear in the plaintiffs in these cases, an argument that I deserve to be admitted because I have statistical merit. And I think, that, I, I agree, I don't see race as a definition of merit, but I think the, I think the challenges have been, um, we have better academic stats and therefore we should be admitted. I mean, and I think that to me is sort of the false narrative of merit in this, and it, which ignores kind of picking up what Jem was just saying, like I look at admissions and I think as we fill each class, we map the future. You know, we're, we're looking at communities that will both thrive in the four years they're with us, but then go forth and be leaders and live lives and vote and uh, be in the world and raise families and, and through the 2070s as careers and beyond now. And that to me is a multidimensional, multicultural, multilingual, multi, multinational landscape today. I just don't think the reality of 2021 and beyond um, can be anything but um, uh, inclusive. It has to be. And so this whole notion of statistical merit um, is to me, as you, as you say, I agree that that's kind of the core of it. But, you know, to use the vernacular that I hear from students, C's get degrees, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so are we looking at building communities where everyone is going to bring the same profile, perform in the same way? Like that, that's just not even logical. And so the bottom line, as we all know, we are inviting to campuses or we're inviting to campuses students that have the potential to be academically successful. That looks different for every one of us on this panel, right? And so this whole notion that those statistical um, quantitative measures are the only things that contribute or the only um, um, indicators of, of current and, and future success, again, is, is short-sighted and just inaccurate. Yeah. But who's perpetuating that though? I guess that's a question I ask, right? And um, who, or, it, or we've all had conversations about this um, because, it, institutions have an opportunity, leadership has an opportunity to, to again, take a good hard look at what constitutes merit mm -hmm. and who's deciding that and what is it reflecting? Is it reflecting um, the capacity of the, the student who is admitted or is it a reflection of a reporting point of pride for the institution? And, um, and that's, you know, that's a, a, a pretty critical point of tension. And I, you know, I appreciate um, Karen, your perspective on on this that that I, you know, I, we could even argue that like statistical merit has limited merit. I mean, what, what is the what is the value of statistical merit, and what is it um, what is it uh, you know contributing to in our um, understanding of what a um, a student's um, capacity to learn or engage contribute? Um, and so it's in interesting that the lens is on other elements and uh, and not on that at the moment. Yeah. One of the, the most harrowing moments I, I had at my previous institution was uh, the place where I work would continue to, to report how great our numbers were looking for students of color and how it increased year upon year. And I was 
sitting with a student that I knew pretty well, and she had heard that statistic. She was a student of color, and she said she'd never felt worse than when she came to orientation and move-in day and looked around at a sea of white folks and said, this is, this is what they're bragging about. Like, it's almost like it, it was even worse because we as an institution had shared how great it was, how these numbers are good, for, but for that lived experience, I mean, it, it compounded her challenges thinking like, looking around and just being like, wow, like I, this is what they bragged about. You know, almost like, what have I done? <laughs> it was a tough moment. Well, um, this is Charlotte and I am thinking through my sort of journalist eyes. And I'm just hoping that everybody reads all these stories in the media. Very often they pick up the headlines, but they haven't read the whole story. And this story is particularly good on that point, Jeff. The judge herself wrote that the evidence shows that as a whole, underrepresented my minorities are admitted at lower rates than their white and Asian American counterparts. I mean, that's in the judge's ruling. And then the uh, reporter adds the statistics to go with that. You know, among the 5,630 students admitted to the university, 65% were white, 21% were Asian or Asian American, 12% were black, 10% were Hispanic. I mean, there are statistics there. I hope that people will read the whole story, no matter what school it comes from, because if you don't, you're just fueling this debate with a lot of misinformation and you know, too much, too much subjectivity, I think, is swirling around this. So on the other hand, of course, it's not going to go away because students for fair admissions are going to appeal this. So whether or not the Supreme Court has had the last word, uh, it's a new court. Yeah. And I've been thinking a lot about, you know, these cases on their way to the Supreme Court and what happens if I did a, a talk this spring to Um, an association of um, uh, diverse admission officers. And I said, like, this is coming. And we have to be thinking about not like, what if we win or lose? um, But what's the value we're trying to uphold? So there's a policy that might get overturned, but the principle endures. You know, diversity is a signature of the United States. It's a signature of American higher ed and our aspirations to be more and more inclusive. So let's say one of these cases actually reverses the use of race as one factor among many. Does that mean we erase the goal of having a community drawn from lots of backgrounds and perspectives? And no. And um, I think the opportunity and the challenge is, well, what is the next policy that advances this priority? Yeah, I, I mean, I, again, I, I, I really uh, appreciate that perspectively because it's, again, for raises the question, how do we take this opportunity to engage the question on our campuses in, in a way that um, actually moves the conversation beyond admission, right? Mm-hmm. To, um, this is not just about an admission policy as everybody's been attesting to here, um, but it is about, um, who, who we are as institutions, um, who has access to, to educational opportunities, who persists, who, right? And um, when you go back out and you're engaging some of these other groups, I wonder if uh, um, the, the question is how, how are you engaging your, your other constituents on your, on your campus um, around this topic in a way that moves it beyond just a, a policy question, but rather a, 
uh, and keeps it in the, the spotlight shining on the principal. Okay, Charlotte, this this headline um, continues and it's it's a powerful one. So thanks to Jeff and Karen and Jen for thinking about it with me. Uh, when we come back, we'll have a roundtable with these same three people. See you in a minute. Friends, we are uh, back and this topic that I invited you to bat around with me, I, I'm always intrigued by colleagues who were once admission leaders and they're now beyond the desk and it's decorum and you know you're you're all well informed you you've been around the admission block many many times and you know i i'm, I'm curious about your insights about things you're witnessing or policies that have kind of bounced around and and um i guess my first question to all of you is in this post-admission world you now each inhabit is you know the media um, covers us quite carefully, and you know when I reflect on the 27 years I've been a dean uh, at this point, I go back to the mid 90s, and it was much less intense. Um, I, I in those early moments of being a dean at Connecticut College at that point, I don't think the admission beat was quite as lively, and I wasn't um, quizzed by reporters quite as intensely. Maybe that was the place, but I just I think the the landscape was a little less active on the media front. So from your three perspectives, um, what parts of the admission narrative in the news aggravated you uh, or, and or um, which topic did, did the storyline misrepresent in a way that made you kind of growl at your screen or your newspaper? I think your, the, the initial part of your question was what, which aspects um, kind of you know, rubbed me the wrong way. And, and, you know, I was fortunate to be affiliated with some really great universities with a fair degree of selectivity, probably not the most selective places, which actually was great for me personally and professionally. But the fact that the media continues to focus on the, the uber selective institutions actually really just gets my goat because it exacerbates the stress that young people feel in the process. They don't necessarily, or their families, don't make the distinction between a, a five or a 7% acceptance rate or a, you know, a 30% acceptance rate, which is where we were at GW when I left. And so, and so it, 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 it misconstrues the whole conversation about admissions, about selectivity, and about access. And so there are families who read that and, and think about that and opt out because they don't see themselves, don't, don't think that they can compete within that ocean. And so that's the piece that continues to just disappoint and infuriate me, if, if I guess I'm going to be, be, be clear, because I think it's harmful. I have often thought that the, one of the dominant media narratives uh, parallels the way politics is covered, where there's a horse race um, kind of theme around polling, who's up, who's down, who's trailing, who's, um, and sometimes you miss the content. It's like, well, what are these candidates talking about by way of their policy positions? And we, we frame political coverage around, it's a race. And I think admissions often gets covered in that same way where more is always better. Uh, you know, uh, it's like more, fewer, larger and 
that those those decimal points in the selectivity can be a distraction. Jeff, did you see that at Tulane too? Because you're, you know, what, what's interesting about being in the South is you're outside of the Northeast frenzy, but you're still mm -hmm. connected to it. You know, one of the things I do appreciate it about certainly students from, you know, New Orleans or from Louisiana, like it's just as awesome to go to like, you know, Auburn as it is to go to, you know, an Ivy League school. You know, if you're, if you're going to, I mean, if you're going to a, a big well-known state school, like people in this city are like, oh, that's cool. Like, good for you. Have a great time at Ole Miss. Like, oh, you pick Ole Miss over, you know, a really selective liberal arts school. Like no one's going to really side eye that much as they did you know, I grew up in Bethesda, Maryland, which could could be one of the epicenters of this absolute pandemonium. And I will say that the day I left my previous institution, I very quickly unsubscribed from all of the listservs that I was on that sent me news about college admission because I had had enough. I was exhausted. I was exhausted about reading about the scandals and the mania and all these different things. And, you know, one article left me really you know, shook, as the kids would say. And it was an article that was accurate. It was talking about how college admission used to be a really healthy balance of the art and the science, you know, the art being finding great kids and standing up for the kids you believed in and getting them to love this institution. And the science is the, um, the data, the numbers, the, the, the percentage of students of colors and how many institutions have gotten much more heavy on the science and that's really what resonated with me because that was when I was like that this is true. I think the tension between um, for me it was always the tension between what's the what's the story that needs to be told and what's the story that the media want to tell or that the issue is that that, that they want to focus on for the reasons that you've all mentioned and um, and I do actually recall I mean, had very vividly having a, um, a conversation with a, a reporter from a prominent Northeastern newspaper um, during the time when there was a lot of coverage on um, uh, institutions uh, eliminating loans, um, increasing recruitment um, funding for to um, attend to um, kind of increasing the number of low uh, socioeconomic students from low income and low SES backgrounds, first-generation college students, right? And I had been, um, or was, and then had been at um, a, a couple of institutions. It was Wellesley at the time, and I'd been at Smith before that, that had tremendous um, uh, success because it was so baked into who the, these women's colleges are in terms of access and opportunity and, um, and uh, turning resources, you know, attending to that and um, putting resources in um, in sort of mission oriented places, um, and that was not the story that the, <laughs> that the reporter was interested in telling. And I um, remember asking, you know, why, why is uh, why is it so hard to get this information out? And you know, and essentially the the response was because that's not news. What what about the impact of social media on the work? you all did you know i i'm sobered by the <laughs> thought that yeah jen's laughing so jen and i were deans before social media was a thing uh karen was a dean when it kind of erupted and took hold and jeff is a creature of it an influencer <laughs> of sorts and you know so i'm wondering like what do you like how has that enhanced our storytelling access um how has it complicated this landscape because there's a lot of different outlets um, with all sorts of info swirling around, like what's the, 
Um, it was it was quieter before, but it's also more interesting today. So what do you like, Jeff? You go first because you <laughs> you were the you were the the youngest of this group and the one yes. that I think was most visually native. And um, what 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 was the role you saw it playing? Yeah, I mean, the Facebook.com came out when I was a sophomore or junior at Tulane and. Tulane was one of the, the, the tester schools. So you'd log into the Facebook and click the link for the Tulane page wow. out of like 12 schools. So kind of always been a part of my experience as, a, as an adult. Uh, you know, it's interesting. At Tulane, we could send out 15 emails a month with a 1% open rate or a 2% click rate, but one video on TikTok and we get a million views, you know? And I can say this literally because we had a viral moment where I was in this, you know, perfect timing for a TikTok viral video and it got over a million views. And I still walk, I walk around campus and people are like, you're like, I'm TikTok. Like, so <laughs> I mean, it's powerful. There's no doubt about it. Like that's the way, and if you're cool on TikTok, you're, you know, you're able to really appeal to a certain type of student that wants that in their college experience. You know, what I always told my staff is that TikTok is for the students that we were, that we're recruiting. Instagram is for maybe some of our current students and our young alumni or a millennial alumni and Facebook is for parents. Mm -hmm. Nothing I post on Facebook is for students. It's all for their parents. Even if I disguise it as something like, Hey kids, this is for you. It's just for parents to read it so they can feel like they're getting the insider scoop. Um, I don't know. I don't know where this thing is going. Uh, Lee, you call me an influencer, but (laughs) two years ago I got rid of Facebook and I have never felt more free. I've never felt more liberated. I've never Mm. felt better. And no so longer you, having Facebook. I think it's amazing. Like you've come, like you truly are like a, a digital native who've gone, you've gone the full journey. Um, full journey. But it's, yeah, but it's interesting, Jeff. I had never thought about the TikTok, Instagram, Facebook yeah. triad in quite the way. I love that. I do too. It makes sense. You know, I say I am a refugee from the 20th century. Like I learned to consume information in a very different media environment. And while I I mean, here we are on a podcast. I understand these these new ways of communicating. I, you know, I I, I will. I'm not embarrassed to say I don't know what TikTok is. I've never <laughs> I've never been on it or looked at it. But it I might know be kind there. of our worst nightmare to be viral on TikTok, Leah. I know. <laughs> yeah, I um I was kind of thinking that the danger is chasing every new platform that presents itself and assuming that. It is an incredible one, and it is an appropriate place for you to be. Um, I do think the challenge is always to um, identify the opportunities that extend the message to newer audiences, while, while still holding strong to kind of core tenants, core foundations of the work that we do. And, and that conversation is an ever-evolving one. Um, you know, I think about the conversations we had about, do we still produce a view book? And, you know, all of those kinds of things that we all talked about at one point. And so, yeah, how do you, how do you, how do you evolve, but still stay true to, to your core? And what Karen, when you just said that, I smiled at when you used the word view book, because I said (laughs) that in a recent communications meeting and my younger staff said, what's a view book? (laughs) And, you know, that used to be the flagship piece. It was it, yeah. Yeah, the view book is now bad for the environment. I'm not putting out 100,000 15-page things with a plastic bag and sending it through shipping and receiving. Like, 
Yeah. Get with the program, Lee. No, I, <laughs> well, no, I wasn't proposing a viewbook, but just remembering it as a, a, a publication of note and that, you know, when I was an associate director, I was, I used to work on that. And now it's like, yeah. And we relied on it at points in my it. career, almost exclusively. If there was something that impacted the delay <laughs> of the production of the mute book, oh my gosh. Yeah. Or a misprint that you had to recall. Like. Terrible. <laughs> and the thing that was interesting to me about the view book is it faded in relevance was a, you would do a view book once a year or maybe t- every other year. So it was this static document that the you put together and then it sat on your reception area shelf and you mailed it out to Jeff's point. Um, but it wasn't refreshed. There was no mechanism for, you know, weekly, monthly, even sometimes seasonally saying, hey, here's some new topics. And you think about websites now where they're refreshed multiple times every day. And it's just, mm-hmm. you know, view books just went the way of the dinosaur. But I, I'm remembering going to an admission re- dean's retreat in the mid 2000s and Jen would have been there uh, as the Wellesley Dean when I was at Tufts. And our colleague from, from Vassar used to ask every year, is anybody on the, the Facebook? Anyone? It's kind of like that, that Ferris Bueller moment where the teacher's like, come on, Bueller, Bueller. And David would say, is anybody on the Facebook? And I always think when you put the in front of Facebook, it's a sign that <laughs> it's like a different kind of awareness of what it is. But there was this suspicion in that moment of Facebook as a credible landing spot for all of us. So anyway, it's interesting. So for our friends listening who might be aspiring to a director seat or a dean seat, what skill set should a new dean develop as, as she imagines a role in this work? I think the management piece is huge. Taking on opportunities to work with and across teams and understand the, um, the, the, the different elements of, of admission. I think that the data piece and capacity to analyze and again, interpret and integrate data is, is critical. Um, and the and how it informs the narrative of the institution, but also how the narrative of the institution helps you ask the right questions of the data. So I, I think that level, those analytical skills are really critical. I would absolutely um, um, agree with that point. Um, you know, my, my master's work, my graduate work is in higher ed administration, which is very practitioner oriented. But if I had to do it again, I'd get an MBA because I think that would have um, strengthened some skills um, in just the areas that, that Jen articulated that would have um, positioned um, me and I think our team um, for an additional level of success. So those kinds of things I think are absolutely crucial. And, and I think it's very different from, you know, kind of what drew me to admissions you know, years ago, which was the the people and the helping students. And I think that's still there. I think that's still crucial, but I think the, um, you know, the the management skills and um, understanding budgets and, and finance and, and all of those things um, are so much more important now. There's also great importance in finding some opportunity to continue to be connected to the students. Yeah. No, that clarity of purpose is always really important. Mm-hmm. And the thing that I, you know, is, I mean, to the three of you who have moved into the admission afterlife and left me behind, I like, you know, I, when I think about the role I play, 
now at Dartmouth, but the three other roles I've had, like it is very rewarding to be in, it, it, it's one of those rare moments in the higher ed space where you feel like, okay, I am helping this place move forward and using influence to make an impact on people's lives. So that's kind of corny, but it's how I always see it. Jen, Karen, Jeff, always wonderful to see you. Thank you for joining Thank yeah, you. Thank you, Lee. Thanks, Charlotte. Yeah, this is wonderful. Great to see you. And we'll see you soon. Yes. Thanks, y'all. You know, the challenge of bringing admission people together, whether we are on Zoom uh, or at a, at a school or when we could in a more social environment, we can talk. So I think this episode covered a lot of ground. And this week, we're going to skip inbox because I think a lot of the questions I might have raised were covered in the roundtable. So we will come back to that next week. Uh, for now, I'm Lee Coffin with Charlotte Albright from Dartmouth College. See you soon.